Thank you for joining us on Breakfast with Champions, an opportunity for you to get a seat at the table. Today we have Barbara Majeski, a lifestyle blogger, real estate investor, and a TV personality. Make sure to download, subscribe, and share out the Breakfast with Champion podcast because Glenn Lundy believes that if you can change the way people start their day, it'll make a massive impact in their life. So let's pull up a seat and let's join in on Breakfast with Champions. Ty, if you're still there. Are you still there? 
All right, I will hold it. All right, you're there. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you? Um, I just have a quick question. Do you have a minute? Sure. So you mentioned, and I agree with you, um, the ability to be able to read people that a level of emotional intelligence can really take people so much farther than anything that you're going to study in school. And you had mentioned, you know, you can you can tell that, but and you'd love for kids to learn that and it to be taught in schools. I could not agree more. But I actually learned that through direct sales, going business to business, cold call, straight commission, direct sales. How would I wouldn't know how to teach people other than put them out in the field and learn how to read customers. What would be your advice and how to train people to read people? That's a great question. I mean, first off, I think step one is an awareness that people can even be read. I think that we all grow up with this kind of human snowflake concept. Some of it's due to religion and some of it's due to this, that we're really very, very unique when when you learn to read people, you learn that personality types group together. I built a personality system um, called the PACE system just for myself internally, which was people can be divided into practical action, social or emotional humans. Um, you know, Jungian kind of ML, MBTI has 16 personality types. There's certainly, there's a constraint. There's not millions of personality types, just so we all no, probably there's somewhere between four and maybe 32 personality types. So I think once you wrap your head around that, it becomes much easier because or else when it, like how I grew up is like every human's this unique snowflake and everybody that it's like, well, there's 8 billion people. I'm not going to be able to learn to read 8 billion personality types. So once you learn that, then the game starts to get much easier. And you're like, oh, this game's not impossible to break. I think the second thing is you have to use standard personality quizzes, even if they're not perfect. So I built one you all can use for free. I don't monetize it. I should one day. I will called Life Compass. You can that and Life Compass is not a quiz I built myself. It's I just put I compiled all the most scientific quizzes together and you can take it yourself and, and use it to have other people. And you'll start to see patterns. So, for example, have your mom and dad take Life Compass, and you'll start to see, like, we all know which one of our parents and families are a narcissist. Look at their confidence scores that they get on Life Compass, and then, then take that and have your business partner do it, or a prospective business partner. And so I learned it by just volume of and comparative. I started going, all right, Bob is definitely a narcissist. I had Susie take it, who I'm dating, and holy shit, she almost got the same level of narcissism as Bob, who I know is a horrific person. So that started to cue me in on, because remember, most, it's a little bit like prison, you know, all the slightly dumber criminals are in jail. Society's full of all the criminals who never got caught. <laughs> so it's a self-selected group in a prison and not in prison, and it's the same with people around you, you might say, well, Ty, there's no way this person's a horrible person. No one's ever told me that. I'm like, yeah, maybe because they haven't been caught yet. You know, maybe they're really intelligent and exploit. I shouldn't say horrible person. The technical word for it is exploitative. You are going to have to learn to read exploitative traits. These are most of the traits that you need to understand. It's not hard to know if someone's an extrovert or introvert, for example. I mean, this is one of the Jung's uh, gifts to society is this concept of extrovert introvert. Well, that's not very important. You can pretty much tell who's an extrovert 
adverse but exploitative traits which are narcissism which breaks into there's seven types of narcissism and that's the tricky one because you may have a friend who's not a vein one of the the seven types of narcissism are authority superiority exploitativeness exhibitionism uh self-sufficiency uh vanity and uh is that all of them anyway it, uh notice vanity's only one and by the way, notice that self-sufficiency is classed by psychologists as a type of narcissism because we as Americans tend to think, oh, self-sufficiency is a great trait. Well, just remember when you look for a business partner, if they have extreme levels of self-sufficiency, that's a negative, not a positive. Some self-sufficiency is obviously positive, but it's classed in the NPI, the Narcissistic Personality Inventory, as one of the subfacets of narcissism. So. I think, you, I guess the next thing is you have to get more advanced in understanding because a lot of times we just say, oh, that person's a, not a narcissist. They don't look at themselves in the mirror. That means nothing. You can be an authority narcissist. I see that a lot with entrepreneurs, kind of a know-it-all. Um, an entitled person is a form of narcissism. That's one of the seven that I forgot, entitlement. Um, I have my best friend is a genius. He's a real genius, but I've always tried to start business with him. And it always comes to nothing with this guy. And it took me a decade to realize this person's entitled. That's why it fails. He, he's intelligent. He can work. He's a hard worker. He has a PhD. This is not my current business partner, by the way. But this guy, because he thinks the world owes him something, he always ends up sabotaging the business we do. At the right critical moment when he should put extra effort in, he relaxes because he's like, yo, I'm me, you know, don't you know who I am? This world is gonna work out for me. I don't want that guy as my business partner. I don't want somebody who wakes up and goes, oh, I'm short, I don't even have to do anything. This world will work out my way. That's a form of narcissism. A lot of things that are in on influencer Instagram, business Instagram, I see it now for what it is. It's, you know, it's funny. People think you're a nar I was a narcissist because I show a new Lamborghini. Maybe, um, that's not, a class that's not necessarily um an exploitative narcissistic trait so if i had a business partner who had a lamborghini that's not the biggest red flag in the world i know a lot of people who virtue signal um i'll tell you something to be careful of when people project an image they are almost always the opposite really so when you meet somebody who really tells you listen i am an honest person i am an honest god-fearing christian I, I mean run for your life i'm not saying run for your life because they're a christian i'm saying when they purposely tell you how non-exploitative they are this is a gr is simplest way to read somebody people who virtue who talk about their virtue a lot and i see that on social media i see a lot of the big influencers and sometimes people are like oh ty if you could go back you know, would you not have shown flashy stuff? I'm like, why? That's that's part of who I am. I don't need to pretend I'm the most virtuous person in the world. Part of why I'm in business is to make money to afford nice things. I'm willing to tell the world that. And then I meet these other people who are business influencers, big ones who are like, oh, I'm just doing this for legacy. I'm like, bullshit. I know you behind the scenes. You like money more than me. So I think um, remember a sign of an exploitative person is it's like a boxing feint. They pretend they're not going to punch left, and then they hit you with the right. 
So you really got to be careful. Life is a minefield of, of exploitative people. The good news is um, there are a lot of non-exploitative people out there. The quandary is, in general, the more intelligent and talented someone is, they often lead towards these more exploitative traits. So as you go up to try to find the most genius business partner or the most genius investor or the most genius um, employee to help you, realize that that scale of genius brings with it a lot of baggage. So, you know, my dogs, I have a boxer dog on my farm, has an IQ of about 40. Well, guess what? Who doesn't ever try to take advantage of me? My boxer dog, he's got an IQ of 40. It's not in his brain to go, oh, how can I, you know, pretend like I love Ty, and then when he's not looking, steal more doggy biscuits. But humans have IQs, you know, the average human's 100, and this goes all the way up into, let's say, the 150s and 160s. You'll rarely find anybody above 150s in the Stanford Binet. And so those people up there at the top, boy, they are complicated humans. And it's like Einstein said, the most rare thing in the world is a happy genius. <laughs> so we all want geniuses on our side in business, but realize you're going to have to be real picky at the top. Hey, Barb, can I ask a question? C-Rock. Yeah, yeah, go for it, C-Rock. So, Ty, good to hear you, brother. This is C-Rock. Um, I just uh, wanted to know how you handled your best friend when you realized that, like, as far as communicating to him. And by the way, by the way, by the way, my dog yeah. loves me or pretends to love me, but she still tries to steal biscuits. <laughs> you may have a dog with an 80 <laughs> IQ. I think the top dog in history was this border collie named Wiston Cap out of Wales in Ireland or Wales. And the dog had like a 800 word vocabulary. And it's pretty smart. It's smarter than some people I know. Um, but in. Uh, wait, what was the question? Sorry. It was, no, uh, how did you how did you communicate talk. to your friend your friend your best oh, friend? Oh, yes. So what I did, I, I stopped doing business with them. You're gonna have to. There's a lot. It's just like family. I'm telling you right now, um, at least thirty percent of your family you should just say hi to on Thanksgiving. Don't interact with them. Um, <laughs> the vibe of a human is the most poisonous or polluting thing, or the most uplifting thing and it doesn't matter i always say blood's thicker than water but it's not thicker than common sense um usually someone in your family is a big part of why you haven't reached your potential so you have to just cut them out and you don't have to do it ruthlessly like never talk to them block them on instagram and facebook just deprioritize them and that's what i've had in business that friend i stopped doing business with them i said yo you're my buddy I love you, man, but I ain't doing business with your ass because nobody wins. I lose, you lose, you're frustrated at me. Let's just be regular friends. We can go to the movies, we can travel together. And so I think we have this utopian understanding of this world, like everything, all of our family should be on our side. Uh, all of our friends should stay loyal forever. But that's not the story of human civilization. It's not the story of the human species, the homo sapiens. Um, look, there's a great, if you want a more advanced book, if you all, I'll give you the most powerful book. But I warn you, when I give this book to people, some people only get 10 pages in or like, fuck this. I don't even want to read this, even if it's true. It, write this name down, Trivers. T like Tom, R like red, I, 
V like Victor, E-R-S, Robert Trivers. He's the founder of evolutionary biology. He's the father of it. He basically is like Nobel Prize winning level. Um, and he wrote a book called The Folly of Fools. Now, this book is so intense. I'm just telling you, I'm, this is not me like hyping it up. The Folly of Fools is a mind-blowing book. It's basically the premise, the hypothesis based on his science or science is that the human brain is structured to lie to us, okay? Because the most effective liar is the person who doesn't know they are lying. So you have right now a family member, I promise you, every one of us, likely, unless you're maybe an orphan, don't know your family, who actively thinks good of you, but poisons you, okay? And that is because that's explained in the book, The Folly of Fools. We have a brain that is built to lie to us. A narcissist is an example. We all have a friend who's not good looking, but is sure they're God's gift to men or women. We look at them, and another example of this, you'd see in extreme examples like anorexia. Everybody around somebody can see they're not fat, but when they look in the mirror, that's why it's kind of a disease, they actually perceive themselves to be super fat. And that's where you get the one of the food disorders, anorexia. I mean, it's more complicated than that. I'm obviously oversimplifying. I'm not an expert in it, but it's that basic concept of our brain does not always tell us the truth. And because of that one book and that one hypothesis, the world will start making sense to us. Um, Robert Trivers, he's famous for something. He has three hypotheses that are very famous. One's called um, uh, reciprocal altruism is something he's famous for. Um, and then he has one on kind of the sexes, male, female, why we have sexes among the species. But he has one called parent, um, child, offspring, uh, conflict, sorry, parent, child, conflict. And it's a huge thing for everyone here to realize that at an anatomical level, children and parents exploit each other. For example, you know, when we go down the fallopian tube before we're born, okay, your mother, the way that the blood flows in a woman changes in the last trimester. The baby basically hijacks the mother's body, okay, and says, no, that blood supply first goes to me before I go. And then when a woman is nursing, it's very hard on a woman to nurse. It takes tremendous, it's not as big a deal now because we have a lot of calorie surplus, but in history, you know, tacking on an extra thousand calories was life or death for, for women that were nursing. Lactation is a, a very complicated thing. And the reason I'm giving you this long-winded thing is I'm showing the, bio the biological structure of exploitation happens even between parents and kids without us knowing. It's not like when we're babies, we go, ooh, I want to harm my mom. But we do. We do because the world is, and some things are like a zero-sum game. If there's only 3,000 calories in your hunter-gatherer packs and you as a baby start taking a lot of them, guess what? Your mom can't reproduce during that time. She, your, your siblings have um, issues, and that's why you see sibling rivalry is a big thing. Everybody here who has a big family probably has some trauma between siblings. We like to think that siblings always love each other, but they, you don't, unless you're identical twins, you don't have 100% of your genes. Now, 
let me just end by saying this. If your own family accidentally and unknowingly exploits you and they share genes, your mother, you have 50% of your mother's genes, you know, if you have half brothers, it goes down, cousins are 12 and a half percent. What is it with people who aren't related to you? It's going to be more exploitation. Your business partner probably not related to you. Your employees probably not related to you. So what I'm saying is, if the foundation of science as we know it is that children and parents have conflict and exploit each other unknowingly and knowingly, imagine what it's going to be like in the business world, my friend. <laughs> imagine you're going to make a million bucks and somebody who has zero of your genes is going to try to take that million dollars like it's nothing. So same with governments, by the way. Governments don't have shit. Now America is going to try to tax you. You know, going to try to tax you. So people leave California. I was in the 52.5% tax bracket in California. I consider that exploitative. I'm like, that's not fair that I have to pay 52.5%. It de incentivizes me, you know? Anyway. Well, Ty, that was a, a great answer. And thanks, C Rock. And I do want to welcome to the stage Elisa Jacobs and Perry. Uh, Blecker, thank you so much for coming up here. We love uh, seeing you visit us here in Breakfast with Champions. Um, at this point, Ty, I actually feel that I have the IQ of your boxer uh, based on all the information that you just shared. Barbara, you're a mess. <laughs> Does anybody else feel this way? That was a lot of amazing information, and I, um, I, I clearly need to do that more. Was fascinating. That fascinating. was like, wow. fascinating. Very fascinating. Wow. Mind-blowing. I'll be reading books. <laughs> Alisa, you've been in, uh, in, in the room listening to Ty. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts and feedback on this. Uh, you've put yourself in a position where there are a lot of eyeballs on you. You've done amazing things in Silicon Valley world and beyond. And so I'd love to hear your perspective on this as well. Hi, guys. Thanks, Glenn. Yeah, I love listening in. I I'm happy to say it's not from boarding a plane for the first time in a long time. <laughs> um, I really enjoyed what Ty had to say. You know, I think that with the business world, whether you're an executive, an advisor, an entrepreneur, or um, an employee, there are optics and there are brands being created, whether you're crafting the narrative or not. And I think as a female executive turned entrepreneur and venture-backed one at that, I've been very conscious of having to learn that there are double standards and there are expectations of optics and aesthetics and behaviors and communication that come with the territory. Um, with that, there are assumptions. I thought his take on narcissism was really interesting, obviously not speaking clinically, but there is overt and covert and there are a lot of mislabelings and misnamings, right? Because we think if someone's really bold and... Um, you know, the definition, right? And usually it's much more behavioral and much more um, insidious than that. Um, I do think that when you don't make a brand for yourself, a brand is made for you. And I've seen the pros and cons of that because while I'm considered in some ways a branding expert and built most of my career before launching a gaming collective um, and a culture marketing agency, in brand building, right, across six different categories of sports and fashion and music and spirits and CPG and, and now gaming, 
I was never conscious of my own, whether that's on social media, whether that's on panels, whether that's even here on Clubhouse. I tend to just go where I feel and talk or do or be. <laughs> and it was a learning lesson for me over the last several years of understanding that when you have advisors and investors and employees or colleagues, that when you don't tell your brand story, someone else will. That's not always a bad thing. Sometimes it's sort of lightning in a bottle um, and, and magic happens, but you are your brand. So I think being incredibly authentic is obviously a buzzword, but really important. And I don't disagree with what Ty said, that when someone is constantly defending their persona instead of sharing and reflecting their person, it is usually trying to convince themselves as much as you that they're so integral or that they're so passionate or that they're so concise. One of my favorites is I, I had a colleague that would always say, well, to summarize, and then he would repeat everything you said in more words, less coherently. And it was sort of a running joke because he was so convinced that he was so concise and, and succinct. And so I think sometimes there's a level of self-awareness that has to happen and you have to believe how people show up based on how they act and how they treat people. Um, you know, I think one other thing I would just add is having self-belief and instilling that in others, I think is one of the greatest gifts we can give professionally or personally. Um, I know a lot of the community is aware and, and as a, a very long time personal real life friend and, and clubhouse collaborator, not to be morbid, of, of course we lost Jim Leonard's Wolf and Lion last week. And one of the things that he really stood for and um, stands for, I will say, was around this indomitable belief in you, whoever you is or are, right? And what would it be to measure success by how much you believed in others or how much you got people to believe in themselves? So how that translates to growth and branding and how that translates to um, being triumphant, I think is that delusional sometimes belief and confidence that you are not only unstoppable, but having total and utter faith in whether it's your God power or your creative possibility and infinity, and that everything is in your control and command. And so I would just say that I don't have it figured out. I'm only recently starting to even consider um, optics because I have to. And I also have always prided myself in, frankly, not giving a shit what people thought. Um, but I think being mindful and being aware are really great qualities, whether it's in any relationship in your life or business. And that is the core of branding. The core of branding is being a listener first and a speaker second. And that's the same way I think we come into rooms to listen first and speak second. So that's my take on it. And I really appreciate everything Ty shared and Barbara. I thought those were really great questions. So thanks for the space. I'm going to go back to listening. I'm done speaking. Thank you, Alisa. That was great. That was really impressive. Did anybody else want to jump in before we uh, reset the room? Feel free to unmike. I'd be happy to share the stage. Well, Alisa, you're definitely a rock star. And uh, I don't remember where I first heard it, but a friend of mine or, or somewhere, maybe I read it, said, uh, when people show you who they are, it's best that you believe them. Right. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, all the words and so on and so forth is is uh, it's just that it's just it's just word smack. It's the actions that matter, 
uh, most. And so I want to I want to keep bouncing with with the, the two of you. We don't get to see uh, both of you very often in this space, and I really appreciate you being here. Uh, Ty, you still available? So Ty, I'm, I'm I'm curious. You mentioned uh, how people with a high IQ and that have, you know, that reach certain levels of success and influence and powers, understandings of psychology that they can be tempted or ultimately at some point maybe lean over to the dark side. And so my question for you is how I see you as that. I see you as incredibly intelligent. Uh, obviously, you've had lots of levels of success. You have an understanding of psychology and how people work. And my guess is there's plenty of temptations in your world for you to uh, to stray and take advantage. And so how do you keep yourself uh, morally and integrity, you know, morally and integral and in line when it comes to business and making your decisions and to keep from swaying over to that dark side? Yeah, I mean, first off, I would say I'm no saint. I always, you know, I, I like what Charles Barkley, I remember a long time ago, the basketball player. He was like, I ain't no role model. I don't want that burden. And I, I have always, um, I actually, part of why I think I'm controversial, I made a decision years ago that I was not going to just post everything to make me look like a saint so that, you know, Warren Buffett says, what's the secret to a good marriage? Low expectations. So I feel like people, there's a lot of people out there who consider me like a wolf, you know, and it's funny because I know the people that they consider sheep and, or, or I should say virtuous people. And I'm going, man, beware of wolves in sheep clothing. I think I'm a wolf on the exterior. I have Lamborghinis and pictures of videos of me partying in Hollywood. But if you look at what I did, I mean, I built programs that were less expensive than college that got results for people. Now, like I said, how do I keep myself from straying? I mean, like I said, I'm not even a saint. People go, oh, Ty used, you know, powerful imagery that conveyed a message that like, oh, you'll have a Lamborghini too if you just read books. And I'm like, you know what? If that's the worst accusation that I go down as the dude who exploited the world, got people to read, got people to, into entrepreneurship because you held out an image that not everybody would get, I can live with that. I can live. I don't think I'm a saint. I think, I think that humans like Mark Twain said, everybody's like the moon. We have our dark side. And so I think what would make this world in some ways a better place is for people to show their dark side too. I think it's not that healthy that it's kind of like filters on Instagram. Is it that healthy that, you know, everybody only posts videos and pictures where they're in their absolute best light? I'm not sure that's good for the world. In the same way, I'm not sure if we only show our most virtuous sides to the world that and, and that's a problem in the world now because if you show a non-virtuous side you get labeled instantly versus i'm going that's how the world and i'm not talking about heinous things like taliban you know i saw today in afghanistan there's reports they're pouring hot water on women's faces yeah i mean these things are clearly horrific and that's not what i mean by having a dark side but what I'm saying is I don't ever go on social media and say, oh, I did this all for legacy. And I 
don't care about myself. And, and in fact, I have this principle, maybe this will answer it. It's called the 50-50 rule. I I've, would like to live my life 50% from my own selfish intentions and 50% for the good of the world. And I'll tell you, I tried to do every variation. I've tried to do 100% for the world um, and just live for other people. You know what happens? You lose motivation. You're not that effective. That's kind of the principle of capitalism. It's like, if Elon, would Elon Musk have created Tesla if there was no incentive and he was just doing it for the world? Maybe he would. We have no idea. But we do know that he did it for profit and he sold PayPal for $130 million and that was the beginning. He may have changed over time, but once you make a lot of money, money becomes less important. And so I think everybody listening, be very careful of trying to live 100% for other people. It just, you don't do a good job of it. It goes against your DNA and you end up not helping that many people. But I've also tried to live like 90% just for myself. And I think when you do that, kind of lose touch with humanity and you end up not that happy. You know, you're like Ebenezer Scrooge in, you know, the famous story where you just become the shell of yourself where you're just like only care about yourself. So I think we should project an image that's true, which is most of us humans live about half for the good of other people and half for ourselves. You know, I mean, look at Afghanistan, America, people go, Oh, America's not that virtuous. And I'm like, no, America's been going kind of by the 50, 50 rule. We kind of care about the Afghanistani people, but America kind of cares about itself. And so people are very confused. They're like, I'm totally confused. America, I thought, was this highly virtuous price that only – that just cares for the refugee. I'm like, no, America's full of people that are at best the 50-50 rule. That's all we are, and guess what? That's how you get the situation of – look at Joe Biden. Joe Biden's like, well, I think I made a great choice. I don't care that people are falling out of airplanes. Now, I'm not justifying what he said, but I'm saying look at the reality of the ground, and that's how governments – and humans have been for millennia. So anyway. Can I ask a quick question? Um, can you hold hold that for one second? I have two people that want to ask a question. Um, Sarah and Alpha Six. Sarah, you had one, and thank you, Ty, for sticking around because this is fascinating. I'm getting a ton of DMs. Um, people are really appreciating what you're bringing, and same thing, uh, Alisa. Um, Sarah, why don't you take then Alpha Six? And I didn't hear who piped in. Who was that? It also had a question. It's Coach K. Okay, Coach K, you can go after Alpha 6. Okay, go for it, Sarah. Thank you so much. Hi, Elisa. I love seeing your beautiful, smiling face in Breakfast with Champions. So mm -hmm. I wanted to, good morning. So I wanted to ask you, because we're talking about triumphant growth and branding today, you are a powerful woman founder. And I'm curious what that journey has been like for you to scale and grow and be a leader in the field. Um, as a woman, um, and also to really own your power. I mean, I follow you across social, and you are you are brilliant, you're feminine, you are powerful, and I was just wondering if you could kind of talk about where your personal and professional brands intersect for us. Sarah, that's an incredible question. I don't know that I have a great answer. I think what I was alluding to in my first commentary was that I am really figuring it out. You know, I've been in the game 16 years, and I've been in every seat, right? So I've been not only an intern and work, I've been working since I was seven. I've been working like official jobs off the books since I was 13. 
I've been interning since I was 16, and I continue to apprentice in unpaid positions to learn and grow and network, even in director-level roles in my early 20s up until probably 26. So I've worn a lot of hats, and I've worn the hat of lowest on the totem pole and the quote-unquote boss. I've worn the hats of the creative and the marketer and the executive and the operator. And so I'm used to having to flex between being the youngest in the room, the only fill in the blank in the room in terms of other in different aspects of culture, or the only woman in the room for every stage of my career. Um, I candidly am used to being judged and underestimated and having to overcompensate with uh, language and vernacular or leading with intellect or being incredibly covered up and um, demure. And I got to a point in my early 30s where I kind of just said F it in terms of optics. And it was really important to me that while there was a bit of rebellious nature in that as well, but that I was able to make a point that you can be all of yourself all of the time, that you can be feminine or beautiful or passionate or creative or curious or adventurous and also run the ship. Um, that said, I think that there are boundaries to it because at the end of the day, and you know, forgive me for always speaking very bluntly, but like old white suits, usually men typically control the money in most industries and most institutions. That is a statistical fact. It's not a coming from someone that's focused in DEI for the last 15 years or a woman in business or a woman scorned. That's just math, right? And so at the end of the day, you don't have the luxuries that the gentlemen have at times. And our black and brown counterparts and folks that have other factors that work against in terms of the pay gap or other things, we're layered in our boundaries and our parameters. So there's this really delicate balance that, as I mentioned, I'm still learning of not necessarily appropriateness, but what it takes to be taken seriously for what you know, not what you show. And I know that's counterintuitive to saying, you know, show, don't tell. But there is a difference in um, also what is visible. So when you talk about social media or you talk about speaking engagements or events or things that are visual and physical, um, there's always going to be a different expectation and a different assumption made of women. And likewise, men have lots that they have to deal with. And, you know, I remember my dad was retiring. Um, my dad's been CEO of a nonprofit and used to work in social work. So he was retiring after like 36 years. And I remember when he was starting to grow out a beard, my dad has never had facial hair. And he had this sort of silver fox gray scruffy beard. And he, just to make a point, had changed his LinkedIn and his, you know, photos. And it was hilarious because people didn't recognize him. And it was something where he kind of was like, I can do what I want now. I'm, I'm old and I'm leaving, <laughs> right? And he had always had to be so buttoned up and never got face milk and never did anything because as the CEO and the face of not only a lot of really important social movements as a social entrepreneur, but also, you know, with the Syrian refugee movement and other things, he didn't have the luxury of being taken as someone that was um, not serious. And so it's not just a genderized thing. It's that you have to know where your power is. Once you've proven yourself, you know, at a certain point, you could run down the street naked or you could 
you know, sleep until 10 a.m. Or you could be out until 3. Or you could be just saying whatever's on your mind all the time. You get to sort of wear the crazy hats as an old lady in the children's books, right? But until you've proven yourself at that level, until you've made those gazillions of dollars or really moved the needle um, in culture, there's a really giant gray area. And in that giant gray area, unfortunately, there are still rules and regulations, and we that rebel will have repercussions whether anyone says it or not. So you have to be conscious and know that you're taking um, calculated risks in that rebellion or be willing to play the game enough that you protect your integrity and authenticity but also package the product. And you are the product. You are the brand. So as much as we say optics doesn't matter or Ty's Lambo didn't matter or whether you're wearing a suit or a cocktail dress doesn't matter, it does to someone else. So you can choose to say, well, I don't care what other people think like I did most of my career. Um, or you can recognize that sometimes that slows you down. And you got to make sure that you are in the position to make the decisions before you take too many of those risks. And in, in vocal moments as well, like how much you get to sort of raise your hand or raise your voice. So I believe that if you want that freedom and you want to be able to be all of yourself all of the time, entrepreneurship is an important path or senior leadership. And if you're comfortable as an employee or as an executive or as a corporate um, entity or, or things like that, if you're comfortable playing by the rules just a little bit, you're going to have to make those concessions. And that comes with sports. There's rules for the game, right? That's, that comes with, you know, um, venues, no shirt, no shoes, no service. And as someone that has never really liked rules and built my career on breaking the rules and challenging industries and really being a champion for change, that is something that I'm still reconciling because it really is counterintuitive with my belief system. But I also recognize that we are the Trojan horses. So when we get the opportunity to, you know, in my case, I had the opportunity to co-found and, and serve as CEO as Queen's Gaming Collective, which is, you know, product, talent, and content in a $190 billion industry by the end of the year, right? And it's a lot of not women and a lot of not diverse women at the helm. So you kind of have to be able to come in and make incremental before exponential change to be able to be that Trojan horse and sort of be like, well, I brought friends. So that's the, that's the trade-off. And I hate to make it not so rah-rah, right? Like these are sobering thoughts, but I also believe that if you know how to own your brand and you know how to develop and build brands that consumers want, that they relate to, that they care about, everything comes down to loyalty and trust in relationships. And truly, consumers are just a relationship, whether it's a client or a buyer. So if you can build a relationship built on trust and built on your integrity, and Ty's not wrong. Listen, like I have a very legacy and purpose-driven both identity and um, services, right? But I chose the fastest growing multi-billion dollar multinational industry. I could have gone to be a social worker if that was the only intention. I also believe that there is power in status and power in voice and power in role and power in money. And that power can be used for good. And so there is also trade-offs to being really accountable to your intentions and also being really aware that agendas are good. And I'm going to say that again because I probably made 90% of the audience really uncomfortable. 
Agendas are good. Hidden agendas are not good. But if you are transparent with agenda, all that means is intention. It's the same thing you call your calendar or or your diary. It's where you put your resources, your time, your money, your attention. So being clear on your agenda and aligning with folks that have clearly defined agendas that synchronize and are even symbiotic with yours is going to accelerate and expedite your growth. And it's going to help you find like-minded, like-spirited, like-souled, and like-gold individuals to really build things at scale. And Ty made a great point earlier as well, which is it depends what your metric of success is, whether that's $10,000, dollars $30,000 a month in passive or active real estate and things like that, or if it is a different benchmark or different measurement of success. You don't have to be laser-focused on the exact numbers, but you do need to know when you're winning or losing. And you only know if you're winning or losing if you know how you define and how you measure your success and those around you. So I know that was a bit long-winded, but you hit a real nerve and one that I work with a lot of young women and mentor in because I battle with it every day. And I really want women in business to feel free and liberated and able to be all of themselves all of the time, but also protected in how to get there. So hope that helps. I'll shut up now. (laughs) I love it. Hey, friend, this is Brielle. Can I pop in? Hi. Hi. Hey, so something that I think would be really powerful to touch on is we've had a lot of offline conversations about um, jobs or occupations that you have been intentional as far as building your agenda. Right? When we talk about agendas being good, being really intentional about knowing who you are and what you want to bring to the world and offer the world and leave with the world. And that's why you've uh, built the way that you've built. Can you touch for the room on maybe the idea of not choosing and not taking opportunities when other people might be a better fit, right? Maybe not even telling the stories, but looking at your path and knowing, because one of the most impactful stories that I have with you is um, a story you shared with me where you made a decision, a hard decision, to not take a role because you saw someone else might be a better fit, but it fits so well into the agenda for your legacy and understanding what it's like to not take roles that could be a better fit for someone else and seek out roles in choice that are perfect for you. Sure. First of all, so nice to hear your voice. It has been way too long. Um, Brielle and I actually were in sort of the OG community here on Clubhouse, so I was very used to hearing each other's voice all day, every day, most of fall and quarantine and and winter, so very nice to hear your voice. Um, I'll keep it really brief because I feel like I've taken up a lot of stage time, and if anyone wants to reach out or, or sort of dive deeper, I'm more than happy to, but I think the reality is that while it is really important to build a bigger table and whether that is speaking from a gender perspective, a geography perspective, LGBTQIA, whether that is racially charged, whatever the it is, right, the identity, there's sometimes finite resources and sometimes only so many seats at the table. And sometimes you have to sit down and by sitting down, it's actually giving up your seat because until we do make more meaningful change and until we are Trojan horses and until we do have the opportunity to 
um, increase that abundance of affluence and not only democratize access, but also equalize not only the creator economy, but executive roles, entrepreneurial opportunities, backing. The statistics are absolutely wild. Even as a woman CEO, you are audited more than 12 times, I believe. I don't want to be quoted on wrong math, but I believe it's more than 12 times um, per male counterpart. Um, the expectations are totally different. The funding is totally different. And so you're always going to be up against something. And I believe that unfortunately when, you know, when it gets really tough, people tend to go into comfort zones and comfort zones mean silo. And often that means the community that looks like you, feels like you, or thinks like you. And that's a beautiful thing in terms of tribal marketing or tribal culture, but it's a really dangerous thing if you are isolating allies. And so there's very few things that can really move forward from grassroots to macro movements. Um, even for uh, indigenous or immigrant folks that don't have native or folks in power supporting or the BIPOC community, if you don't have white counterparts willing to actually sacrifice because there will be monetary sacrifices, there will be seats on the panel or seats at the table or roles that it's, it's one or the other, right? And I do believe in abundance and I do believe in manifesting and all of the beautiful things we talk about here and in other spaces on the app and in real life. But part of creating a reality is being very aware of your part in the creation. And so I think that, and this is my own personal belief, I don't push it on anyone in the room, but I think that being really mindful that um, if it is a role that is specifically dedicated to uh, women in leadership and you as a man are up against a woman and there's other roles for you, there may be an opportunity to create space. It might not be that way, but one way is allowing that role or championing for transparency in salary so that women and um, black women in particular, often it's not normalized to share what you're making. And so they don't always get the opportunity to negotiate, I mean, myself included, we don't negotiate our, our worth properly. But part of that is just people not intentionally holding space, but not making space by information sharing or, um, you know, diversification of wealth or opportunity. So I don't think it always comes down to, hey, I have to give something up for you to get this, or you have to give something up for me to get that. But I do think a consciousness and a mindfulness that that is a possibility. And I think it makes the difference between what it means to be an ally, an advocate, and an activist. And I say that because, you know, if you go to the etymology of the words, ally has to do with, you know, obviously being there for someone else. But when you go from advocate to activist, advocacy comes from the Latin root for voice, right? Activist is activation. It actually is active. It is an action. And so if you don't really recognize that there are differences there, we have to um, be willing to give or give up. And I don't think it's always in the form of sacrifice. Sometimes it's you know, in money, sometimes it's in time, sometimes it's in resources, sometimes it's in, you know, donating hours or consulting or helping with literacy in areas that certain peoples are not given as much access to. But access to entry is a really important barrier to consider. And it's not just about 
you know, promotions, not just about when you are the CEO getting audited. It is actually about at the very beginning of the process, getting your foot in the door. And I think the more that we kind of kick that door down or at least prop that door open for whoever is coming behind us and have the reflection and self-awareness again, I keep saying that, but it's truly what I believe, to look back and to keep it open and consciously, constantly, consistently, it's the only way that we actually help level each other up. And it's not something that everyone has to be accountable to or responsible for. We're not our brothers and sisters keepers every day, but at least putting that in your brain as how do I support the next person and how do I support someone that maybe doesn't look like me or maybe didn't have my privilege or my resources or my access to fill in the blank. Just, you know, share the tools and be okay with the fact that you will get yours and there are more opportunities and there is an abundance in um, that karma. And yeah, I mean, without getting into the weeds of the examples, I really appreciate that question. I think that's a really important thing for everyone to consider, regardless of what you look or act or think like. I love it. And I love the example of men and women and equal pay. I think that was an amazing way to look at it. Um, and I really value that, especially here on a stage where uh, Breakfast with Champions just values diversity. And uh, we really try to blend, right, the, the male, the female, the everything, the equity across the board. Thank you for your answer. Thank you for joining us on Breakfast with Champions. If you want to catch the live version, you can follow us on Clubhouse and listen from 5 a.m. to 11 a.m. Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, Saturday 6 to noon, and Sundays with our 111 Sunday service. Make sure you're keeping up with Breakfast with Champions and getting yourself a seat at the table.